Hello, and welcome to the Parabola Podcast. I'm story editor Betsy Cornwell. Each month I'll bring you essays, stories, or poetry from Parabola Magazine's four decades of archives, and the podcast often features guests who offer us guided meditation or prayers. This month I have something special for you, excerpts from the very first issue of Parabola, The Hero. Our inaugural issue appeared in 1976 and featured writing by P.L. Travers, Jacob Needleman, and Minor White, among others. I'll introduce you to the issue the way our editors did, with the first-ever focus. This is the first appearance, the first words spoken in public, of a new magazine. For us behind the editorial scenes, Parabola has been in rehearsal for a long time, Now the curtain goes up, and beyond it there is the feared and longed-for audience, strangers waiting to be bored or entertained, whom it is our task to convert first into friends, then into participants in our play. We are nervous naturally, but, like the curve of our title, we must launch out. We must speak to you. We must introduce ourselves. We have been asked, and we have asked ourselves, searching questions. Why parabola? Why the name? Why the magazine? Perhaps the response to one question will begin to answer the other. A parabola, besides being, of course, a parable, is a curving line that sails outward and returns with a new expansion, and perhaps a new content, like the flung net of the Japanese fishermen. With an opposite movement, it curves back in upon itself in the concavity of the parabolic mirror, which reflects and intensifies the light it confronts. It seems a good name for a quest, a directed quest, of course, a search that begins from a standpoint, a point of view, a conviction. Now another question we have been asked is, how can we honestly speak of questioning when we already have convictions? Our reply to that is that to be open-minded doesn't mean being like a basket with no bottom. Conviction and quest are not only not incompatible, they are essential to each other. Parsifal could never have asked the right question had he not been convinced about the existence and the primordial importance of the grail. Parabola has a conviction that human existence is significant, that life essentially makes sense in spite of our confusions, that man is not here on earth by accident but for a purpose, and that whatever that purpose may be, it demands from him the discovery of his own meaning, his own totality and identity. A human being is born to set out on this quest, his quest, like any knight of Arthur's court. That is why our first issue is centered around the hero. The hero, that more than life-sized figure of myth and history and fairy tale, the conqueror of evil, the liberator, the rescuer of the oppressed. But who is the hero? How terrible to think, as P.L. Travers points out in this issue, of not being the hero of one's own life. This is the role for which each of us is cast, no matter how unsuccessfully we play it. And if the part seems too big, if we picture the hero as being indeed more than life-sized, it is because our daily life has dwindled, become less than real, and only pygmy proportions seem natural to us. Every true teaching, every genuine tradition, has sought to train its disciples to act this part, to become, in fact, followers of the great quest for oneself. Saint or sannyasin, monk or craft apprentice, 
Sioux, Sundance Warrior, Muslim Sheikh, or Knight of the Round Table, all are striving for the conquest of the ego dragon, the finding and liberating of the pure essence, the center of being. As Dr. Eliade has brilliantly shown in the chapter from which we have taken Nostalgia for Paradise, the search for centrality expressed in myths and rituals across the globe is the search for the truly human position, the midpoint and link between heaven and hell, angel and animal, the specifically human function of the reconciliation of the opposites, by which life becomes whole and holy, eternal, no longer divided, and at last makes sense. The search for salvation or immortality, however we understand those terms, is first and foremost the search for that in oneself that is more than mortal. Every man is a potential hero, even ourselves, and every society, even our own, is a potential training ground for those who recognize and accept their role. This recognition may be buried deeply in the subconscious, yet it expresses itself today in our torn and dying world as it has throughout time, if we can learn how to decode the messages of myths ancient and modern, of our own customs, our own actions, and our own dreams. This world we live in, with its theologians preaching from the pulpits that God is dead and shaven-headed youngsters in tennis shoes chanting Hare Krishna on Park Avenue, with its brutal protectorates and its law-breaking legislators its crusades for freedom leading to worse slaveries. This world of murderous contradiction, destruction, competition, this world we live in needs our heroism as it has never before been needed in man's memory. How to be heroes today? Who will help us to learn or give us the magic gifts that win the treasure in the fairy tale? So our search begins by looking for help And here we find that not everything that offers help can be trusted. The enemy puts on many disguises, and even before courage, we need a keen eye and a keen nose. Indeed, for the ancient Maya, the capacity not to be fooled was the hero's first requisite. So a constant watchfulness is needed, a certain skepticism, and a refusal of stereotyped definitions. The followers of the traditions though not their teachers, tend to state claims on truth that are mutually exclusive and to add their interpretations to scripture. But Christ and Buddha, Moses and Muhammad were not given personal opinions, nor speaking of different things. If truth is one, where is the center, the hub of the wheel, the place where all teachings meet at their source? Perhaps the only access point is at the source and center, of oneself. The study of myths and symbols will serve us only in throwing light on our unknown selves. It is not an academic study. The effort to decipher our own unconscious symbols, unravel the real meanings behind our actions, witness unblinkingly the parts we actually play, exacts from us an exercise both of courage and of discrimination that can perhaps be the beginning of our training for the starring role we were intended for. So parabola launches itself outward to see what it can find and at the same time draws itself inward to receive what it can reflect. Come with us, all of you, or some of you at least who are reading this, in both directions.
One of Parabola's first contributors was P.L. Travers. Lately played by Emma Thompson in the movie Saving Mr. Banks, she's also the author of the Mary Poppins novels. I'll introduce you to this inaugural issue of Parabola with her essay, The World of the Hero. I will preface what I am going to say with a few lines from E.E. E. Cummings. May my mind walk about freely and supple, and even if it's Sunday, may I be wrong, for whenever men are right, they are no longer young. This gives you leave to doubt me and to take what I say simply as hint and indication and not at all as assertion. It is meant as a whisper at the inner ear and designed to touch that part of you which is not accessible to the things that are spoken of in newspapers. But before we begin to search for the hero, I think we should take a look at the element he moves in, the world where he functions. Folklore, fairy tale, allegory, legend, parable, even nursery rhyme. For all of these are, as it were, the principalities that together comprise the homeland of myth, the country which in the old Russian stories is called East of the Sun and West of the Moon, and for which there is no known map. But first I think it important to clarify what I mean by that word myth. We have so betrayed and brutalized language that we have forgotten that in itself it is in a way mythical in the sense that it is sacred in its essence, a gift at some immemorial time mysteriously bestowed. Even the behaviorists are beginning to question their own theory that language is a simple human function that has evolved over millenniums from the grunting of bears and apes. We've lost our respect for this given treasure and now care so little to foster its growth that we have all become like Humpty Dumpty. When I use a word, he says in Alice in Wonderland, it means exactly what I want it to mean. This is all very well, perhaps, for somebody who is living down a rabbit hole, but not for us, if we are truly to understand each other and try to communicate ideas. We have to admit that words exist in their own right, that they have antecedents, long family trees, and are not just foundlings left on a doorstep for anybody to pick up and do with as they will. If I were a hero, the maiden I would set out to rescue would be language. The word myth, for example, is largely accepted and used as something synonymous with lie. It's a myth, we say, meaning something that is not to be believed, a teradiddle, a tall story, an impossibility. Even the Oxford Dictionary describes it as a fictional account. I would rather have said unverifiable, but even that would not have been exact. For whether we know it or not, or wish it or not, we all, like the hero, live in myth or rather the context of myth, as the egg yolk lives in its albumen. And if we set about it, we can verify and confirm the fact in ourselves. If we begin to look for the origin of myths, we hear first perhaps the answer of such Victorians as Fraser of the Golden Bough and Andrew Lang, that they are the relics of an ancient barbaric world, the avocations, even the aberrations of savages. But when one thinks of Gilgamesh, or of the Chinese structures that underlie that oldest of known books, the I Ching, of the Hindu myths, the African, and those of the American Indians. One can only say, what barbarians are these, and pray to be turned forthwith into a savage. Malinowski, nearer the mark, called them the re-arising of primordial reality in narrative form. 
And Nietzsche, who in everything he did and wrote was deeply involved in the mythical process, said that myth was not merely the bearer of ideas and concepts, but that it was also a way of thinking, a glass that mirrors to us the universe and ourselves. One of our own contemporaries, Robert Graves, has written that they are all grave records of ancient religious customs, events, or ritual, and reliable enough as history once their language is understood. And William Blake said, the authors, and he spelled the word with a capital A, the authors are in eternity. And in eternity is where we have to leave them, I think, if we are looking for inventors. We shall never know what species of man it was that first unfolded from his own subjective understanding, this Orphic and objective art. And as to the meaning of the myths, the more one studies them, the more one sees that this heritage from archaic man, the rituals and concepts that guided his conscious life, miraculously survives and is ever-present in the subterranean layers of ourselves. It can be tapped as one taps the waters under the earth, it can be questioned as once our forefathers questioned the oracles, seeking an answer to what in essence is perhaps not so different from our own question. We go to the myths not so much for what they mean as for our own meaning. Who am I? Why am I here? How can I live in accordance with reality? Now this problem of meaning can literally overwhelm us, particularly nowadays when there are no rituals, no rites of passage, as the ancients called them, to help us make the transition from one stage of life to the next. One moment we're children, and a moment later, as it seems, we're adolescents, and then grown-ups facing alone our own existence and all the dubiousness of things. And yet perhaps not so alone as we imagine. The myths have something to say here. Not an absolute, not one sole word, no blanket phrase, although every religion, every tradition, to say nothing of every anthropologist, every archaeologist, and of course every psychoanalyst, lays claim to the myths as his special province, his own particular possession. We know, they say, in the kind of voice that makes one immediately reach for one's hat. We know and we will interpret. The myth means this, the myth means that. It means, of course, our meaning. Well, to be honest, so it may, but that is not the end of it. One of the characteristics of this ancient art is that it won't go into any particular pocket. It won't be coerced or owned. The myths never have a single meaning, once and for all and finished. They have something greater. They have meaning itself. If you hang a crystal sphere in the window, it will give off light from all parts of itself. That is how the myths are. They have meaning for me, for you, and for everyone else. A true symbol always has this multi-sidedness. It always has something to say to all who approach it. One could say, I think, that the myths never were and always are, and therefore they are indestructible. Wherever there are men, there are myths, and no matter where on the globe they arise, these myths have a startling likeness to one another. At some particular moment, always unknown, for they are not subject to the carbon test and can't be dated, and they may appear at different periods among different peoples, the self-same themes seem to emerge, as though something in the psyche of a race had ripened and produced a fruit that corresponded not in its form but in its substance with the fruit of all other races. The fact that the same stories arise in India, the Middle East, Europe, the Americas, as well as in China and Japan is an intimation that their proper soil and seeding place is not in any geographical location, but in man himself. 
This alone could ensure, if we believed it, I'm speaking ideally and mythologically, of course, that no one on the planet need be a stranger to any other. Indeed, there is a Hindu myth that illustrates this. The high god Indra, it is said, once made a net to enclose the world, and at each knot or intersection he fastened a little bell. If you think of a fishing net, with a bell in every knot of the string, you can see what this would mean. Nothing could move, not a man, not the wind, not a thought in the mind, without setting one bell ringing, and that one bell would set all the others going. It is a wonderfully graphic way of telling people who could not read, who received things through the ear rather than the eye, that everything is inevitably connected with everything else. But if the myths always are, who is it that enacts them? Who sustains them? Who keeps them alive? You have only to read the New York Times to see the myths crowding into it with their splendid and terrible deeds. The daily disclosures in the papers show the material on which the myth-making process inherent in man is always at work, however unconsciously. Not only among poets and mystics, but also and chiefly in the folk. And by folk, I mean you and me, and anyone walking in the street. Take as an instance the story of Galileo. Galileo is not a myth. He is in all of the history books, where you will read the undoubted fact that at a time when it was believed that the sun moved round the earth, Galileo dared to assert that the very opposite was true, that the earth moved round the sun. Under pressure, however, and on pain of death, he was forced to deny his truth. Thus he was able to save his life, but as he turned away from recanting, he muttered firmly into his beard, Epor si muove, nevertheless it moves. The story is known to everyone. Galileo was famous for the line, but the recantation of his recantation has nowhere been recorded. How could it have been? The only people near enough to hear it were his inquisitors, and had they heard it, his fat would have been in the fire. He never said it, except, of course, in his accurate heart. But in its unconscious shaping of the hero, the folk required that it be said. The story required that it be said. The truth had somehow to be told, that Galileo was not a liar. So mythologically, Galileo was required to say it. It is a truth, but it is not a fact. Then there is the case of Lady Godiva. Everybody knows the story, how in order to get from her skinflint husband a gift of land for the poor of Coventry, she offered to ride through the streets naked, having first taken the precaution of ordering the people into their houses and all the shutters closed. The whole of Coventry obeyed, except for one man by the name of Tom, who peeped at her through the crack of a door and had his eyes shriveled up for his pains. It is from him that we get the phrase, a peeping Tom. But the fact of the matter is that Tom did not enter the story until it was 200 years old. Gradually, and mythologically, the folk must have come to realize that nakedness without an eye to observe it has no meaning whatever like Bishop Berkeley's cow that didn't exist until somebody beheld it, and that an order without somebody to disobey it is somehow incomplete. A story can't live with a heroine only. It needs a villain to bring her to life. So, of course, the matter was at last put right, and Peeping Tom now belongs to the myth. He also is true, but he is not a fact. So you see how the myth-making mind works, balancing, clarifying, adjusting, making events somehow correspond to the inner necessity of things. It is this tension, the uncompromising insistence on both ends of the stick, 
black and white, good and evil, positive and negative, active and passive, that gives the myths their ambivalent power. In our Aristotelian Apollonian world, where we constantly applaud the good, uphold law and order, and stand on the side of what is right while keeping the atom bomb in our pocket, the bloodiness of the myths, their vengefulness and brutality, their Dionysian recklessness, and on the other hand, their splendor, are difficult to accept. They are too large for us, too mighty. Perhaps that is why we give them to children, who with their strong stomachs and their minds as yet untainted with knowledge are more likely to understand them. To understand, for years I pondered on that word and tried to define its effect on myself. At last I came to the conclusion that what it means is the opposite of what it says. To understand is to stand under. Later I discovered that this was, in very fact, its meaning in Middle English. So in order to understand, I come to something with my unknowing, my nakedness if you like, I stand under it and let it teach me, rain down its truth upon me. That is, I think, what children do. They let it make room in them for a sense of justice, for the wicked fairy as well as the sleeping beauty, for dragons as well as princes. This grasping of the whole stick is an essential feature of the hero. So what, or rather who, is the hero? We're all familiar with the paladins of myth, Theseus slaying the Minotaur and finding his way through the labyrinth by means of a single linen thread, Aeneas finding the way to the underworld with the help of a little golden twig, Daniel outfacing his pride of lions, Jonah measuring the dark in the belly of a whale. But what is the common denominator among these, and indeed all other heroes? Could it be, and it's a question, not an assertion, that first and foremost, the hero is one who is willing to set out, take the first step, shoulder something? Perhaps the hero is one who puts his foot upon a path, not knowing what he may expect from life, but in some way feeling in his bones that life expects something from him. I think, too, that no hero would ever protest that he didn't ask to be born. If he isn't sure that he did ask, at least he is ready to behave as if he had as if having been given life, he is ready to answer for his life. And so he has to leave home or safety or his own conditioned way of thinking and feeling and put himself naked at the service of whatever necessity arises, a dragon to be slain, a gorgon beheaded, fire brought down from heaven. Now, the hero is not a god nor even a saint, though many saints have been heroes. He has a human heart and therefore a dimension of vulnerability, and the possibility of failing. The idea that there is a flaw in creation is fundamental to all myths. But only by studying them does one realize that it is only by the flaws, only by its imperfections, because they summon up the perfections, that creation can proceed. It is the same with the hero. Each one is a fallible man. Achilles has his inordinate pride, but where would his battle fervor be without that very pride? Lancelot, perhaps the most cherished hero in all myth, envied by men, loved by women, set out to find the Holy Grail while at the same time betraying his friend and king with the wife of his king and friend. He never saw the Holy Grail. It passed him by by a hair's breadth. But by his heroic faithfulness to his own unfaith, he not only sustained his place at the round table, but was its brightest ornament. And his son Galahad, or his own unsullied part perhaps, was the one who found the grail. 
Ulysses, whom one might call Lancelot's runner-up in popularity, succumbed to temptation in every known port of the world until he dropped anchor in his own haven of Ithaca. He succumbed, yes, but unlike his men whom he left behind in various stages of beastlyhood, he was alive to what he was doing. He kept an eye upon himself, the cunning man, the crafty one, and came home as a hero. David, spying Bathsheba from the housetops, arranged to have her husband Uriah the Hittite set in the forefront of the battle so that he might marry her himself. And we are surprised, but the myth is not, that the outcome of this distasteful deed was Solomon the wise. Generations later, the lineal descendant of David's tree will say to the man who loved him and betrayed him thrice, Thou art Peter, and on this rock shall I build my church. This rock, this matrix of gross earth and crystal, is the essential hero stuff, for it is through his human failings and his human triumphs that the hero serves his purpose, which is to make himself a channel for the gods to come down to men. In the process of discovering his own identity, he becomes for us mythologically the mediating or reconciling element, and indeed the pattern. And also mythologically, in an antique way, we comfort and sustain ourselves with what in us corresponds to the hero. But is this enough? Perhaps if we could really listen to what the myths are telling us, we would hear what I heard myself saying not so long ago. Everybody has to be the hero of one story, his own. I said it lightly, or rather something said it in me, for we know more than we know we know, more than we understand. And if it is true, what an awesome undertaking. All those dragons, give them whatever name you like. Those journeys to our own dark underworld. All those imprisoned princesses to be rescued. One would shrink from such an obligation if the alternative was not also so awesome. Not to be the hero of one's own story. Could one agree to that? Could I fail to be some sort of Demeter searching the world for my child, myself, my lost Persephone? It is not a question to be answered but responded to, stood under, as it were, with a kind of fear and trembling. Because to attempt it, I have to be in the same situation as the hero in the Russian story called Go I Know Not Whither, Bring Back I Know Not What. It is with this unknowing that I have to set out to find the homeland of myth, that homeland so well described in Rumpelstiltskin, where it is called the country where the fox and the hare say goodnight to each other. This phrase embodies all that we need to know, for in effect this is the country, the conditions where the opposites are reconciled, the place where one goes beyond them. Good night, fox, good night, hare. I wonder where we can find it, where in ourselves can we look for it. And yet it is not always there, and are we ever really out of this east of the sun, west of the moon, land of myth? Can we escape from it even if we wish? If you feel that in what I have said about myth, whose garment I have hardly touched, I have drawn too long a bow, you must remember that the long bow itself comes out of a myth, the myth of Philoctetes. And if, as I said at the beginning, you wish to take anything I have said with a grain of salt, do so, always remembering that salt also is an essential mythological element. <laughs>